Pastor Mike, I'm so sorry that we don't have a good attendance for you being here tonight. Hey, there's people here. I'm excited. Okay? Pastor Montoro filled in for me last uh, Wednesday night when I was out of town at a conference. And uh, guess how many we had? Zero. Amen. I was feeling so bad. Oh, Pastor Montoro, nobody there, skunked. And then Sunday morning, we had great service. Uh, and then Sunday night, again, zero. And then last night, we had Wednesday night service, and guess how many we had? Zero. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Pastor Mike, that's three out of four services. Are you worried? Well, first of all, we have two very faithful people in the church that happen to both be out of town at the same time. So that, I can't begrudge them for going out of town. It's summer. It's when you go on vacation, and they're being faithful in churches where they are. So it's what it is. Uh, you can't do anything about that. But no, I, I'm not worried. I mean, I don't particularly enjoy it, but uh, it, is, uh, it's, it comes with the territory. Now, you may be thinking, oh, you're not a church planner anymore because now you've got a big building and you inherited a good history. Well, those two things are true, but we're still definitely church planning in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Now, we have a building and we inherited a great history and we have services but it's not a church. It's not a church. Sort of. I would say the light is flickering, but it's not out. Praise the Lord. And as, as I, I have a quote, I'm not going to read it in my message tonight, but I've been, I read it, was it last night? But I've been meditating on it all day. And it basically, it's something to the effect of, uh, we don't come to church, we don't come into a building to be the church. You know what that means? We don't come into the building. To be, we follow Christ. And as we follow Christ, he builds us up as the church. You see that? There's a big difference there. You know, we have our tracks, right? They're outreach cards, visitation. It's got most every church has got the church information on it. And you want to give people a friendly invitation. But we're not really inviting people to church as much as we're trying to invite people to Christ. Okay? And when they come to church... They don't say, we have Christ here, take them. No, we point people to him and say, there's his cross, there's his offer to you, and we invite people to the cross. Now, that's different if you have a Catholic background, and I was actually talking to one of my Catholic neighbors about this, and she said, you know, when you have a, an older person who's Catholic or Muslim or Orthodox or something, isn't it kind of hard sometimes to witness to them? Because, you know, they're so sweet, they're so nice, and you don't want to have to say, hey, you know what, you're wrong. <laughs> so you're trying to, like, tactfully do that. And this lady is sweet as can be, and she's so nice to our family, and every time my kids walk by, she gets out her purse, she's giving them dollar bills or lollipops or something like that. She's sweet as can be, and she's so happy about what's going on with the building. But I tried to just broach the subject this morning with her and just tell her, hey, you know, one of the differences between our church and your church, because she goes to church every day at 9 a.m. for that Mass. She's there every single day. I said, the difference is I met with God this morning too, but I didn't have to go to church to find him. And, uh, and you know, she kind of looked at me funny and I said, you know, when you come to our church, we point you to God. When you, when you go to your church, you're being fed God. And there's a big difference between those two things. And tried to just gently kind of broach the subject there that, you know, God, biblical Christianity points people to Christ. It says the only way to God is through Christ. But the Catholics take it too far and they say and the only way to Christ is the church. And that's not in the Bible. And uh, the opposite is true. And so, um, anyway, you know, that's how it goes sometimes when you're trying to be a witness and a testimony. But 
I, somebody asked me to write something about the church plant and what's going on there in Greenpoint. And honestly, uh, I've had the, the email for almost a month and I can't figure out what to say. And uh, I kind of had a struck with some inspiration of how to describe it. And it really is like being on a farm. Now, I know that sounds weird. Can you hear me okay? Give me a head nod. Okay, all right. Then I don't have to shout so loud. All right, help me, Brother Leland. Um, maybe I need a little more of me up here. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, I, it is a lot like a farm. I know we're in I didn't grow up on a farm or anything like that. In a lot of ways, it is like farming. And all those horticultural uh, analogies and metaf- uh, allegories and metaphors in the Bible are beginning to make sense. Uh, you don't get the fruit of your labors. Now, maybe you've tried to grow something in your windowsill or something like that, or, you know, you have a graveyard of plants that, you know, you had all these aspirations for, and some people are gardeners and some people are garden killers. You know, I don't know which one you are, but, you know, when you work all day on the farm, you're hoeing that field. Some days you don't even actually get to do any farming. You're working on the tractor all day, and you never even get to actually get out and do the work that you wanted to do. Or you're out there all day, you're working in the field. You don't anticipate any sort of satisfaction by being able to pick fruit at the end of the day, right? Because the tree hasn't grown yet, or the vine hasn't grown yet, or the plant hasn't taken root yet. You're in the beginning stages, but you know that a harvest will come, but only if you work today. You work today for the harvest, not even tomorrow, but down the road, right? And church work is a lot like that. It really, really is. And I'm, I'm learning. I thank God. I, I feel like I'm in, I'm like a... Sometimes I just feel like I'm a spoiled brat. You know, I, I, God's just been so good to us, um, given us this wonderful church to bring us here in the first place. And uh, we got to share the story about that a few weeks ago. Be very impressed. I was on a podcast and uh, was talking about this and, and really tried to talk up Open Door a lot and say, you know, God's been so... The way I came to New York City was Open Door Bible Baptist Church. They had a vision and they literally opened the door <laughs> uh, for, for us to come here. And we thank God for that. But in this work of church planning, you're out there in the field and you're hoeing away and you're putting energy and money and time into it. And you're not going to see fruit right off the bat. Now, sometimes that happens. And we're always blessed when we can lead a soul to Christ or uh, uh, have new visitors come through the door. And although our Wednesday night, Sunday night attendance has been poor, our Sunday morning attendance has been pretty great, and we're very excited about that. Uh, you know, we're not packing the place out or anything, but to have 15, 16 people there, that's happening, and we're, we're very excited about that, and uh, just had one family who's kind of, uh, hasn't joined the church yet, but bouncing around between two churches, and feels like they're ready to make a commitment to just stay in Greenpoint, so that's exciting, and we're, we're excited about that, but most days, you don't get to go pick an apple off the apple tree and say, ah, it feels good to enjoy the fruits of my labor. But if you're walking with God and you're doing his work, you can come in from the farm and you can still sit down and have a good meal. And you can, your soul can be fed and you can be satisfied and you can be content and you can know all this work will be worth it. And I so thank God for those of you who give and who pray. And uh, we miss having you around at, at Union. Uh, some of you, you filled in for years uh, in the services as greeters and ushers and piano players. And we miss you, but we're glad that you're helping out with Morris Park, and we're excited about what's going on there. And uh, I told Brother Franz that this was going to happen. I said, you're going to start your church, and you're going to have like double the attendance of us in the first year. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And uh, the prophet speaks, 
and it is so. And so, you know, but I, I'm so thankful for what God is doing in their church and uh, praying for them. And uh, we have a lot to be smiling about. We really, really do. And God, God is working in absolutely incredible ways. And I thank you for your continued faithfulness in prayer and your faithfulness here. Because it's your faithfulness here that really does keep us going. It, re- it really, really does. You may not even realize it, <laughs> but your participation here has a lot to do with our success in Greenpoint. It really, really does. Now, I meant to say all that, okay? I haven't, I haven't re- yammered on, okay? So we're in Mark chapter number 13. And before we read there, uh, I'd like to uh, just kind of point out, obviously, in case you didn't notice, that it's summer outside. It's hot. Now, we just cracked into August. And uh, it'll be over before you know it. July went by like that. And uh, this is the August panic, right? Where everybody says, oh, no, we forgot to plan a vacation. Let's go and uh, grab the kids. Let's go somewhere before school starts. And uh, everybody's kind of in a bit of a panic. And although it has been hot, it really has not been, if you ask the weatherman, a very bad summer at all. Uh, we have had, uh, I think, a, a, yeah, is it three days in a row of 90 to, for it to be a heat wave? I think we've had like one or two all summer long. So it's, it's been actually a pretty mild summer. It's been humid and wet, but um, it's, it's surprisingly not been that hot of a summer. Uh, but it's summer. It feels hot outside. Uh, thank God for the air conditioning in here tonight. And, uh, oh, you would love it over at Union. It's, everybody complains to me, it's too cold in here, Pastor, during the service. Isn't that great? One air conditioner cools the whole place. And now upstairs, I don't even want to think about that. That's going to be just like here, I'm sure, or worse. Uh, but we have a lot. We have to use air conditioning there too. Sometimes we ask ourselves, "When is this summer going to be over?" And then in January, we're asking, "When is this winter going to be over?" But we're often ready for the next season. I spent some time in Florida, uh, extended time in Florida, and honestly, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm glad that we live in a four climate sort of place, you know, region, uh, four season climate, because I don't know how people do that. The same weather all year long. That just to me seems incredibly boring. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, maybe it's just because I grew up here in Maryland, pretty much the same weather as here. And that would just totally drive me crazy uh, to, have, to, to never have any change. But it can feel like the season that we're in is never going to end. You know, life can feel that way too. Lord, is this ever going to end? Is this trial ever going to be over? Lord, I'm ready for the next chapter. Can we please move on? Can we please turn the page here? Lord, I'm tired of having empty seats in the church. I want to fill this place. Let's go. You pray for us. We had a church in Pennsylvania give us some money. Not some money, 4200 bucks. That's not some money. That's a bunch of money. And uh, they, they had a big basketball tournament and uh, raised a bunch of money through their concessions and registration fees. And uh, after they paid their costs, everything surplus went to to us, which was incredible. And uh, we thank God for that. And so they gave us $4,200 to buy new chairs. Now, chairs are expensive, okay? But if you've been over to Union, you know that we're using three different sets of chairs. We have the white ones from, uh, from here, the old white ones from downstairs. We have some of those, praise the Lord. And uh, then we have some, I think, eight uh, white plastic ones. So we have the padded ones, and we have white plastic ones that a church out in Long Island gave us. And then we have eight wooden uh, padded, they have like these salmon pink, they're hideous, uh, pads on them that I got from a bar over here in Astoria that was <laughs> throwing them out and uh, sat them out on the street. And I picked them up and threw them in my van and brought them over there. Amen. Those are our chairs. But now we're going to have all new chairs, hopefully, before the end of the summer. 
and we're really excited about that. And I kind of feel like I want to just get them in there tomorrow, get the place looking nice. But I have already threatened our people. I'm going to preach a whole lot longer because you're going to be more comfortable now. You're going to have air conditioning and padded chairs, so just watch out. But Lord, when is this ever going to end? It can be something serious, too. A health problem. A difficult person you're dealing with. Trying to change apartments or houses. Saying, Lord, when am I going to get out of this place? When's what's next going to be here? It can be something serious. You know, something that science teaches us is that everything has a beginning and everything has an end. Ecclesiastes says that there's a time and a season for all things. There's seasons of peace, seasons of war, seasons of prosperity, seasons of poverty, seasons of great leaders, and seasons of despots. And in those times, particularly the bad ones, the people, uh, people of God often ask him, Lord, will this ever end? In the passage that we're about to read, the disciples find themselves in one of those times. Lord, when is the page going to turn and our expectations are going to be met? They've come to have somewhat of an understanding of what Jesus is about to do in the upcoming Passion Trial, Passion Week, but they don't fully comprehend it yet. They're questioning to doubt themselves, to even at times doubt the Lord. (laughs) Lord, what are you doing? They even ask the question, when, in the passage we're about to read. You know, there's really never simple answers to bad questions, to tough questions. Life is complicated. God's plan makes sense in retrospect, but sometimes when you haven't gotten there yet, you can be wondering, Lord, how is this actually going to happen? If you find yourself asking, Lord, when are you going to intervene in this crazy world? Jesus has an answer for you today. Let's look together in Mark chapter 13 and see how Jesus answers this question for his disciples in a way that's different than they would expect and maybe that we would expect as well. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not left... (laughs) Okay, I'm losing my eyesight too. There shall not be left one stone upon another... That shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? When? <laughs> Lord, when? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled, for such things must needs be. But the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in divers places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. And take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils and in synagogues. I want you to notice that phrase at the beginning of that verse. But take heed to yourselves. And synagogues, you shall be beaten, you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be preached among all nations. And when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand 
What you shall speak, neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the, bro- now the brothers shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and the children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time now to gather together. Lord, it's good to come together into your house, this place that, Lord, as soon as we walk in here, it's, you can just feel it in the air. There is a spirit of truth here. There is a spirit of expectation. Lord, give us tonight. Feed us tonight on your word. Lord, it's a, a place where there's, we can ask questions about our faith. We can struggle even with difficult things, but we can be sure when we walk in here that the truth will be given, the word will be preached. We thank you, Lord, for that, and we thank you for what it takes to make that happen week by week. Lord, we pray for our pastor as he is away, that he is being fed as well. Our teens, as they're at youth conference, Lord, be with the speaker tonight. And, Lord, may they have revival there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is one of many times where Jesus with the disciples begins to prepare them for the Passion Week. Not only the Passion Week, but what it will be like to be without him after his ascension into heaven. After the death, burial, and resurrection, he's with them for a short time, he ascends into heaven. And that scene, if you remember, when Jesus ascends into heaven, and they are basically, the disciples are doing what we would expect to do. In fact, almost every time you see the disciples doing everything, they're doing what at least one of us would be doing at all times. They're very reflective of the nature of church folk in general, I think. Uh, And at least in some of them, or at times all of them, you can see yourself in them. And, uh, and so as they're standing there, um, they, they are told, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? <laughs> and I find that that sort of spirit of now what <laughs> is something that didn't first occur at the ascension, but happens throughout the disciples' times with Jesus. That oftentimes they find themselves hearing what he has to say, but really having trouble coming to grasp with it, mainly because what Jesus is telling them about to, is about to happen is absolutely nothing like what they think is supposed to happen. We have our plans, don't we? The Bible says man hath sought out many inventions. And we're good at that. We're good at inventing what our future should be. And God is very good at changing it. And the disciples find themselves in one of those times. In our church on Wednesday, excuse me, on Sunday mornings, we're doing a little bit of a, uh, a mini-series. It's only a, a couple weeks long. We're about to go into the book of Acts, but before we do, we're doing kind of a, a brief series through what is often called the Farewell Discourses. That's in John chapter 13 through John, uh, the end of John chapter 15, and that is the time, uh, the, the teachings that are there are uh, given directly after uh, Judas goes out to betray Jesus. And uh, so these, they often call the farewell discourses in that they're preparing the disciples for the time after the ascension. And Jesus is, spends, if you start to look at it in the Gospels, you realize he put a lot of work, both in teaching and in prayer, in preparing the disciples for what we now would call the church age. And as much as he prepared them as apostles, you can see that he is preparing all that would serve him in his churches for this lengthy period of time, and it didn't, they didn't seem to think it was going to be that lengthy. Even the, the apostles, uh, even uh, the apostle Paul, born out of new season, didn't seem to think it was going to be that lengthy, but 
Now, with 2,000 years behind us, we look at those verses and we say, he was trying to tell them it was going to be a long time. <laughs> you know, we see it hindsight, you know, it's 2020. And it's, it's, you, can, you can see that it's not that unremarkable that it's been 2,000 years when you really start to study the long suffering of God and God's timetable and Jesus, even the time that he came and the significance there, you can start to see, okay, it does make sense that it's been so long and that uh, God is uh, very long suffering in this age. And that although 2,000 years seems like a long time to us, it's nothing to him. If a, day, if a day is a thousand years, it's been two days. <laughs> I mean, it's just not, and, and of course, that's not, a, that's not exactly, that, don't get into numerology and start, you know, counting the pages, number of pages in the newspaper and all that and trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. Uh, don't do that. But uh, the point is, is that it's not a long time at all to God. And in John, in the farewell discourses, you have pretty much the exact same thing that we're, we're looking at it on Sunday mornings, where Jesus is trying to prepare them for what comes ahead. Jesus warned them about the imminent destruction of the temple in verses one through three. That's where they say, uh, you know, look at this great place. And Jesus says, you know, the day's coming where this place isn't going to be here anymore. And that seems crazy. That seems ridiculous to them at the time. But now looking back, we can say that's ancient history. That happened in A.D. 70. That place was ransacked and, that, and, and destroyed. Um, <clears throat> that temple is long gone where I'm doing a little bit of research in our neighborhood and, and trying to find out more about the churches that are there. And uh, you could probably do the same thing in Astoria. You'd be surprised what you find. And uh, I'm finding out uh, where, uh, uh, when Union Baptist was built, it was built in 1863. Ten years after that, it had a church split. And the church split went three blocks away and built a building twice as big on Manhattan Avenue. At the time, it was called Union Avenue. And that's how Union Baptist got its name. It was originally called the First Baptist Church of Greenpoint, Long Island, and the split went off and became the Union Avenue Baptist Church. And they continued like that until, uh, and as far as I can tell, somewhat peacefully uh, found a news article of when one of the pastors at Union Avenue was uh, installed as pastor. And it said right there in the article in the New York Times that the pastor from First Baptist Church Greenpoint came and gave him the right hand of fellowship and welcomed him to the neighborhood. So this seems to be that they coexisted peacefully. Uh, for many years, but in 1900, they came back into the original building. Union Avenue sold its property to the YMCA, and uh, eventually the YMCA sold it to the post office, and then they ripped it down, and uh, now it's just a, a, a commercial building that's, quite frankly, pretty ugly, and, uh, and, but it's right across the street from a great donut shop, so anyway, that's history for you. But uh, they had this time where they were, they were separated uh, and it's interesting to trying to find a picture of the place. And I just imagine at the time, you know, we're talking about uh, 1875 or something like that when they built this building and they built the building for about a thousand people. And there's nothing left of the building. The only thing left of the Union Avenue Baptist Church property is I have a couple of knobs from the organ that they push. That's it. <laughs> I'm going to put them on some cabinets one day, I think. But that's it. And they, when they built that place, and it, they, you know, from what we've read, it could seat a thousand people. It's big. They probably thought, this place is going to stand here forever. Our children's children are going to be in this building. Look at this place. And now that was probably some wood-framed thing. The temple was built really, really well. <laughs> and it was more than just wood. It was stone. It was strong. It had foundations. It was, had 
precious jewels that were not only adorning it, but integrated into the design of the furniture. And people thought this place is never going to be torn down. In fact, of course, we know that it was the second temple. <laughs> and even from that lesson, they just thought, no, this place is going to be here forever. Jesus says, the day's going to come, but this place won't even be here. I also, in that research, saw that there used to be a, uh, a not, not Episcopal, what was it called? Uh, let me think of it. Methodist Episcopal. Methodist Episcopal. And uh, church at the corner of Noble Street and Manhattan Avenue. So if you're familiar with Greenpoint, you've been down there. You know the street, the intersection that you turn off of to get to our building. Right there at that intersection, there used to be a huge church that could seat over 1,800 people. And I found a, an actual picture of it. It had four gigantic spires that ran from the ground all the way up into the air. I mean, probably 75 feet tall. They were absolutely huge. Similar size to, to what's down the street still today, the Catholic Church. And I bet when they built that place, they, and that was built in uh, 1870, so a few years after Union Baptist. And I'm sure when that was built, they probably said, this place will be here for generations. And about 50 years later, it was torn down. And what's there today? A tanning salon. <laughs> I mean, God has a way of changing our expectations. Now, this is probably where you would like me to say something like, so give your expectations to God. Well, yes, that was, that's an appropriate message for sure. Expectations can crush you, can they not? And the disciples were walking around with heads full of expectations. You know what made part of what made Peter deny Christ? What made them all forsake him and fled? Is that what they saw before their eyes was not supposed to happen in their minds. In their minds, that was not supposed to happen. Lord, this is not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, I'm going to take out my sword and I'm going to take it to the high priest and I'm going to do something about this. And the Lord told him to put it away. So our expectations can get out of control. There's no doubt about it. But what I want to focus on tonight is not so much our expectations, but what do we do as we're serving the Lord? As times come into our lives when we're uncertain about the future, when we're asking God to intervene and we don't know what to do, they can be short periods of time, long seasons in our lives. Lord, what am I supposed to do with my 20s? Lord, what am I supposed to do with my 30s? Lord, I'm in my 40s. What am I supposed to do? I just retired and I had all these plans, but I'm too tired to do any of them. Lord, what do you want me to do now? It can be great seasons in our lives. The, the, the final kid can be out of the house. And now life has changed forever. What do, I, what do I do with myself? What should I do? Or it can be even broader than that. Lord, we're waiting for your return. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We, we want him to come. Now, listen to me. I'm not the pastor here, so I'll be careful. But if you were praying for the Lord's return, previous president, and now this president, you don't find it so important that he come right away? Something's wrong. <laughs> Something is wrong. Yes, are there indicators that things are better, quote-unquote? Sure. But people aren't flooding into our churches just because the president changed. Okay? Quite the opposite, actually. Okay? And so, uh, just a side note there, and I'm sure Pastor Montoro would approve. (laughs) Um, But what do we do in these seasons, these times? What does Jesus want us to do while we wait for him? Well, we're sure of one thing. He doesn't want us to sit on our hands. 
I, I'm quite sure of that. You could give me a New England amen. That's just a good head, Bob. Amen. I'm quite sure he doesn't want us just to sit on our hands. I'm quite sure he doesn't want us to just enrich ourselves and hang on tight. And we're quite certain he doesn't want us to go buy some giant compound upstate New York or something like that and all just go hide from the culture uh, until he comes back. That's not what he wants us to do. Jesus first, the way he deals with this is he gives them a response that's kind of threefold. First, in verse number five, Jesus says to them, take heed lest any man deceive you. So he warns them about false teaching, first of all. In the time that you're going to be waiting for me, beware of false teaching that would come. Teachers would come and claim to be Christ. Can I tell you today that our world is full of false teachers, full of false teachers, And the interesting thing about living in 2018 is that false teachers are more accessible than ever before. It it used to be that some nut in Arizona or wherever, a nut came to mind, that's why I said Arizona, but there's, there's nuts everywhere, but some nut with a pulpit could get up and flail away and tear the scriptures to shreds and spout the most heinous, dumbest, heresies out there and the few and and all that would be hurt from that were the people within the sound of his voice and for decades we were content with that (laughs) for generations that's all we had to deal with but now that same nut if he has the oldest smartphone on the market that's all he needs can sit it right there the camera's not facing you i'm talking about the front facing camera camera facing himself and no matter how few people are out in front of him, can spew this to the world. To the world. And there are pastors that have 20, 30, 50, 100, or thousands, it doesn't matter, but have a small congregation, but they'll have 10, 20, 30,000 followers on the internet listening to their garbage. Now, we're not anti-technology I'm not the pastor here, but I know that this church is not anti-technology. In fact, when I got here, one of the things Pastor Montoro made very clear to me is we do things with Apple and and iPhone and Mac, and you better just get on board with that. (laughs) And and I appreciate that. And I'm dutifully preaching off my iPad, and I'm going to check on my Apple Watch the time, and I just showed you my my iPhone. So, you know, I've gotten on board, and I've been properly trained here. Uh, Proud to be an ordained minister of Open Door Bible Baptist Church. Amen. But those pastors now have a reach like never before. And we have a consideration to make as believers as to how much of that content we're going to allow into our lives. We really have to think about that. Technology is wooing us in very unusual ways. Now, it used to be back in the day, if somebody was on the radio, whether they were right or wrong, you thought, well, they must be somewhat authoritative because you have to have a pretty big audience to be on the radio. Right? Well, nowadays, that's like totally changed. Anyone can pay to They actually you have to pay to be on the radio now. It works totally opposite. Excuse me of how it used to. I got offered to be on the radio here in New York City. Now, at 5.70 a.m., I could be on one night a week, Tuesday night, 3 a.m. That's when everybody's listening, right? <laughs> For one hour, 500 bucks. No thanks. (laughs) 
tempting as it is, know that. Like I said, we're not against technology. In fact, this church podcasts. Did you know that? All of Pastor Montour's sermons, they're on the website, but I think even better, they're on Apple iTunes, and you can get them delivered right to your your iPhone or podcast app, whatever you want to use. And uh, that's pretty cool. And that the advantage of that reach is that's listened to all over the world. You'd be surprised who's listening to these messages. It's a blessing. But we have to make some decisions about how much of this we're going to allow into our lives. Because the truth is, anybody with a gadget, and you don't have to have the latest and greatest. You can buy a smartphone on Amazon for 20 bucks, And you can podcast, and you can have a YouTube channel, and you can have a blog. I can write the... I can write, if I wanted to, the biggest load of nonsense hooey you've ever heard in your entire life. But if I can make it, put it on a website with a nice picture and a graphic and, you know, everything like that and get it, you'll think it was the most amazing thing you ever saw. That's kind of the seductive power that the Internet has in our day and age and something that false teachers use to their advantage. Now, we try to use it to exploit it for the sake of the gospel so that we can... Preach the truth to as many people as possible. And that's a blessing. But false teachers take advantage of it too. And I would highly encourage you to really, it's not that I encourage you to be naive, but really limit the amount of voices that you let into your life. That's what Jesus said, preparing them for the time he would be gone. Beware of false teachers. You say, well, Pastor Mike, you only want me to listen to my pastor? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I would, I would recommend you go to, if, you, if, you, if, if four sermons a week is not enough for you, to ask Pastor Montoro, hey, who are some good teachers out there that you would recommend? Because there's plenty of his friends out there that have great stuff on the Internet. But can I tell you that um, uh, if you just go on the Internet and start searching for big Internet preachers, there is so much junk out there. There's so much that you do. And here's the big thing, the problem with an, an Internet preacher is... Your pastor, although you're not with him every single day, you have an opportunity to examine his life. In other words, you know that what he's preaching, because, you know, we're not interested in someone who just preaches. They could preach straight down the line, perfect doctrine, and their life is a total mess. We're not interested in that, are we? Yeah. And you have no way to verify a person when you're listening to someone exclusively on the Internet. It's just the truth of it. And that's one thing, something I say to our church is the local assembly um, is an exclusive event. Churches are always trying to have that. Businesses too. We're going to have an exclusive event. I always say our our church services are an exclusive event. Because although we may try to broadcast on the internet or the radio or television, and all those things can be very effective, you cannot duplicate what's going on here. You have to be here. I mean, there's something genius about that. You think of the apostles when they were writing uh, the book of Acts had any clue about the Internet age? None at all. And yet their writings, their teachings are so relevant to us today because the local assembly, it's, it's back in fashion. Local events. Meeting together with people. It's great. A lot of businesses are realizing this whole golden age of technology that we thought was going to just make the world this wonderful place and we would never have to leave our homes and we could do everything online. We're finding out that doesn't work. 
It's innovated some industries, sure, but there's nothing like meeting face-to-face. It still works. And the local church is an exclusive event in that sense to meet together. So he prepares them. Beware of false teachers. He prepares them also in verse number seven. And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled for such things must needs be. But the end shall not be yet. He actually gives them a whole future, a whole list of things to be careful of. He talks about wars. And of course, there's been plenty of wars since. But the point is not that when you hear about war, the end is coming. You hear about that fighting over there with Korea? Yeah, the end is coming soon. No, not necessarily. <laughs> that does not, not necessarily it. We never want to let war influence our theology. We never want to do that. That's something, if you look back at American history, we did that from time to time. And although God has blessed our nation, there's no doubt about it. And I can be a patriotic pastor and, and I don't find any theological conflict there with that. And, just like you, we had a big American flag on our, on our church, on the doors uh, for uh, the whole month of July. And that was a blessing. But we never want to let war influence our theology. You know, churches did that back in the day. Uh, they, they were into something called post-millennialism. And it was this idea that, um, that we were going to bring in this golden age. The millennial kingdom, we were going to bring it on earth. So that it was thought that the, earth, the world was getting better and better because religion's influence was at its peak in the West and was doing great and had a lot of power and sway. And so people thought, well, maybe we're just supposed to keep this going. If we keep it going really good, Jesus will come back. And they actually used the events of the day to interpret their Bible. I tell our people all the time, don't read your Bible with your newspaper open next to it. And don't start, whatever you do, don't start drawing lines between each. That's not a good way to study the scriptures. People do that though, don't they? Anything happens. There's a blood moon. Oh no. Don't do that. Rumors. They're just rumors. The end's not yet. That's not how Jesus is going to show uh, his coming. And uh, so you have, to be, you have to be careful with that. He talks about famine. He talks about trouble. He says that's the beginning of sorrows. He talks about persecution, doesn't he? He talks about the spread of the gospel. The gospel must be published among all nations. He talks about the rise of Antichrist in verse 14, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He talks about the tribulation period. You know, people used to, they used to hold to that, that post, uh, what was it called? Christ returning uh, before the millennium, or after the millennium, was the kingdom was established. And uh, we're premillennialists. We believe that Christ will come for his church, take, take his church, um, and then we'll have the seven-year tribulation period and Christ will return and establish his kingdom. We're not here to make some golden age come or anything like that. Christ will do that. And uh, because the only way that can come is with the sword, the sword of his mouth, the word. That's what can, that, the only way to have heaven on earth is the word of God, <laughs> is, the, is the word of God bringing it, and he'll do that in his time. So, but they used to... Uh, interpret events that way. And so they would say, you know, the golden age is coming. Well, then World War One happened and they thought, oops, <laughs> OK, maybe not yet. And then World War One was over and they thought, OK, well, now here's our chance to have the golden age. And then World War Two happened. And after World War Two, a lot of people left the post tribulational idea there. I was looking for the word. I found it. The post tribulational theology really took a hit after that. because People realized, you know what? The world actually isn't getting better. <laughs> it may be advancing in technology and we're glad for all the benefits that means for our health and 
our conveniences and things like that. But the world, mankind is not changing. <laughs> mankind is still as fallen today as he was way back when. And is still very much capable of war. And of course, we had the Cold War, which proved that even more. We had nuclear weapons pointed at us 24 hours a day. And who's to say, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but we probably still have them pointed at each other even to this day. So you never want to let the Bible... Uh, the news uh, interpret the Bible for you. Let the Bible uh, speak for itself. So then what does Jesus ask us to do during this time? Well, I would say that the question isn't when will these things happen? That was what the disciples asked in verse number four, wasn't it? When will this happen? The question should be, what should we be doing as these things unfold? Not when will this happen, but what should we be doing as these things unfold? You notice there the language in this chapter. He says, I say unto you, take heed to yourselves. You, I mean, he's speaking directly to them. He's telling them what he wants them to do. And I believe the answer in verse number 32, if you look there with me, verse number 32. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father. Take ye heed. Watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. I believe those two things are exactly what Jesus wants us to do. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. We are to watchfully be about the service he has entrusted to us, knowing that he will return for us exactly when the time is right. In other words, while we're waiting, we should be working. While we're waiting, we should be working. Watch does not mean <sighs> watching. We were at the job site at Union Baptist, and if you were ever just sitting around like this, you pretty much knew Pastor Montoro was going to say, you need something to do? Because <laughs> this isn't a watch day. This is a work day. <laughs> Watch and pray is what he tells them to do. Watch there. Gregaria, the Greek word. Be awake. Be on alert. Stay awake. Be vigilant. A guard is not sitting around with nothing to do. Now, maybe you're a doorman or security person at your home or your work. Maybe that seems like that's all they're doing is playing on their phone and sitting around and not doing anything. But a really good one is not doing that, right? They're at attention. They're looking around. They're checking this. They're checking that. We have the ushers of the services. They're not just totally sitting around there. I mean, we try to, we ask them to get in on some of the sermon here, but then they take time and they're, they're checking out here. They're going out on the sidewalk. They're checking down. Why? They're watching. And part of that watching takes work. It requires us to be active when we watch. Watching has the idea of service, about being about what God wants us to do. Watchfulness is not waiting around. It's being busy in the work that God has given us and considerate about the events that are happening around us. I mean, you have to don't think just because you have more revelation than the disciples that you have any more understanding than the disciples. OK, the disciples walked with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. Now, I mean, we have so much more insight that they had uh, in terms of the full revelation of Scripture um, that they may or may not have even been had available to them uh, completely. But we have that now today and we're thankful for that. But don't think that you would have had any more understanding in their situation than they did. I mean, they were they were living and walking with Jesus and being taught of him. And yet the, what was happening right in front of them, they couldn't understand. 
You ever think that way? It's a humble way to think. Lord, why is this happening? I have no idea. <laughs> and everyone seems to know. But Lord, I have no idea. Lord, And I know that, Lord, once it comes to pass, we're going to look back and say, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now I see why you did it that way, Lord. <laughs> now that makes sense. Does anybody feel that way through the whole uh, saga of Union Baptist Church? <laughs> you know, those two years of work. Did anybody ever think to yourself when you saw a pastor climbing these steps to come into the pulpit after a long week's work? And I know he didn't do that. He's a tough guy. But, you know, it, it was it was tough. It was hard. It was it was it was laborious. And it still is in many in a different way. But uh, through that time, just thinking, Lord, this is not how I would have planned it. But now we look back and think, wow, Lord, there is no other, no other way to do it. That is, I mean, that's just great. Lord, thank you for working it out the way that you did. And, uh, and we're blessed over there now. Like I said, I mean, we're practically spoiled. I mean, we've got fully renovated church property. I tell people we're the oldest church in the neighborhood and the most modern at the same time. You know, we've got new carpet down. We've got to have new chairs coming. We've got, we are, we are eco-friendly. We have all LED uh, lighting in the church. Isn't that cool? You should be oohing and eyeing. We're going to get some green certification and put it up on the fence so the hipsters will like us more. I don't know. But, you know, you're going to have, we're, we're, we've got all LED. We've got high efficiency heat system. How cool is that? I mean, God's been good to us. We look back on it and say, wow, Lord. I, I mean, we didn't have a plan. We just picked up our tools and started working. But Lord, you had a great plan. Thank you, Lord, for doing it that way. And I tell you, if you're going to be a laborer for the Lord, if you're going to watch and pray, then you're going to have to go to work some days not knowing how things are going to turn out. Lord, I don't know, that, like the farmer, if I could go back to the farmer, I know it's not relevant. To, you Just bear with me. He doesn't get to enjoy the fruits of his labor that day. But he knows that the work of that day will bring fruit over time. And in the work of the Lord, and as we serve Him, I'm not just talking about preacher life, I'm talking about Christian life. As we serve Him, we're going to have to make decisions that don't give us maybe what we want that day. Isn't that true in raising children? There are days in raising children where you're going to put them to bed at night and as much as you love them, you're going to think, Lord, was that, is that going to get us on track a day like that? Days where you have to correct them, really kind of come down on them. And you don't even want to. I mean, I don't get any sort of sick pleasure out of that or anything. When You really have to come down and correct them. And you, there's no reward. They're not like, thanks for doing that, Dad. That was great. We have such a great, close relationship. No, not at all. But you know, making that hard choice today is going to give me the harvest, the fruit that I want in the future. Making these tough decisions now about their life and our family and our home will help us in the future. That what we're doing today is going to be a blessing for the future. It's like investing for retirement. I hate to even talk about it. But it's like you put money away, you never see it. You never see it. You never see it. You never see it. And Social Security, you'll never see that. But, you know, your personal retirement, you know. But one day you will see it. That compound interest kicks in over time. And one day you will see it. It's like getting out of debt. You could be way in the hole, and then you've got to make a decision. Am I going to go to Starbucks? <laughs> and then you don't go, and you think, okay, well, now I'm still in debt, and I'm thirsty. Yeah, but you know that that decision 
repeated over time is going to get you where you want to go. And that's what watchfulness is all about. It's about doing what God wants you to do today. That's what I would encourage you to do. Say, Pastor Mike, that's not really deep. The advice is quite simple. Watch and pray. Prayer takes it to a whole new level. Because now not only are you not getting the instant gratification solution that you want to your questions, but quite the opposite. Because in prayer, you don't even get to do anything towards those ends. You have to stop, fold your hands, kneel. Now, you don't actually have to do that. But there is some symbolism to that, that posture, that idea of these hands. I'm not going to check an email. There's no multitasking in prayer. Sorry. There's actually no multitasking at all. That's another story. But, you know, there's, uh, you have to, these hands that are busy checking things and, you know, seeing who tweeted what and who's Facebooking, flipping, whatever. And, you know, no. My hands are given to this work. My legs, whether you're sitting, you're kneeling, whatever, are given to this work. I'm, clo- I'm even closing off my eyes. Somebody said the only thing open in prayer is your, eyes and, is your mouth and your ears. <laughs> Speaking to God, listening to God. And, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Prayer, it takes it to a whole other level. Lord, now not only, that's, and that's part of watchfulness. I'm going to close my hands. I'm going to close my eyes. Sometimes even in prayer, closing your mouth. <laughs> or limiting what you say. You ever, you ever tried to do that before? Try to pray for like five minutes. And that, for a lot of people, that's a long time. Right? You can use your phone for this. Put, set the timer. Five minutes, alarm, whatever. Five minutes. No interruptions, nothing. And pray and don't even ask for anything. Try that. Don't even ask for anything. Just speak to God. Tell God about your day. Tell God about what troubles you. Tell God how good He is. He loves loves praise. Just praise Him. Hallowed be Thy name. Just let that inhabit your prayer. Wow. Jesus says, if you can be busy about what you're supposed to be doing, watching and praying... That is, constraining yourself to where all you have is an audience with God. If you can keep those two things straight, you're going to be for, ready for whatever comes your way in this coming age. And can I tell you that that's not only true for his apostles, it's not only true for his disciples in the early church, but it's true for us all the way into today. But if you can learn to focus on what God has you to, to doing today, and you can learn to restrain yourself through prayer, so that you can have more clarity about what God wants you to do, then you'll be ready for anything that lies ahead. If you're going to watch and pray, and can I just close with this, a little Pastor, Pastor Mike advice. You ready for a little bit of that? Y'all look weary. Y'all better enjoy it. The air conditioning feels good in here to me. little Pastor Mike advice. If you're going to effectively watch and pray, that's my way of telling you this isn't inspired, Okay. You'll have to know how to focus three things and we'll close. You have to learn how to focus on one thing at a time. If you're going to work for God and you're going to pray for God, you have to learn how to focus on one thing at a time. I read an article the other day that the most popular tech device among service workers, this is like fast food workers, people working in restaurants, things like that, people on retail floors, the number one tech device is Apple Watch. 
or Android, whatever. But smartwatch. Because they're not allowed to have their phones out. The boss never said you couldn't have this. <laughs> and so they want to be able to keep in touch with who they're talking to or check this or check that while they're working. But you know, you know, I mentioned it earlier in the sermon, there's no such thing as multitasking. Either you're working or you're checking. You cannot do both. And if you're unsure about this, just go over here to the crosswalk at 31st Avenue or anywhere and just watch as people try to walk through the crosswalk while looking at their phone. It does not work. <laughs> Either you're paying attention to traffic or you're not. There's, there is no in-between. There's no I'm going to do both. You're either watching or not. If you're going to watch and pray, you're going to have to learn how to focus on one thing at a time. I, I mentioned about online preachers. And the, truthfully, most of the people that are digesting that are not involved in local churches. They're not involved in local churches. Uh, those sort of folks seem to encourage the idea of uh, whether they want to admit it or not, that their ministry is bigger than the local church. And the, the truth, I get this all the time when I'm out on visitation. People say, oh, I go to John Hagee's church. I don't even know where John Hagee's church is, but he's got a huge international ministry. I don't even know if he is a local pastor. He might be, but, uh, you know, he's had this big international ministry. He's on TV and the Internet and everything like that. You don't go to his church. You know why I know that? He doesn't visit you when you're in the hospital. <laughs> but your local pastor will. And he'll pray with you, and his pastor's wife will pray with you. And you'll see them struggle with you through this life. And you'll see, and their, their house is right there. And you may not know it, but that wall is actually made out of glass because you can see in there all the time. You know what I mean? They live in a glass house. Everywhere they go, they're the pastor, the pastor's wife. They, they are on call 24 hours a day. And I can tell you from having been in this building for extended periods of time, the phone in this building rings 24 hours a day. They're always on call. Watch. If you're going to watch and pray, you have to focus on one thing at a time. It may not be that you need to find better preachers to listen to on the Internet. It may just be that you don't have time for it. Seriously, it may be that you don't have time for it. It may be that to get everything God wants you to give, the messages that you hear here are more than enough to keep you busy, <laughs> are more than enough challenge for what you need in your life. I mean, you're going to have to... Can I just say from a cultural perspective... We are being bombarded with things that are taking away our time. Download this new app. Subscribe to this new service. Join this gym. Join, that th join this thing. Join this new program. Join, join, join. All you need is your email. No money down. No payment required. And they're all taking away our time and our attention. Am I trying to say don't have a life outside of church? Not at all. That is not what I'm trying to say at all. But I'm saying if you find yourself lacking in time and attention for the things of God, for prayer, for His Word, for being a witness, for going to church, then it's probably not because the church has too much going on. It's probably that you're too distracted to really key and focus in. I'll be the first one to admit, sometimes it's halfway through the sermon before I'm even waking up. <laughs> Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Secondly, you'll have to limit the time that you give to other things. Kind of already mentioned that. And number three, you'll have to free up your attention. You have to free up your attention. In productivity circles, there's a guy, uh, 
puts a lot of stuff out there, uh, does productivity talks, and uh, kind of a guru. And one of the things that he says about that is one of the pieces of advice he gives people is to bring your inbox to zero. Now, how many of you have got like two, three, four, five email addresses, and you have thousands of unread emails, and you don't even want to think about it, what it would be like to try to actually deal with them? Most people are like that. Chances are your job gave you an email address. Your other job gave you an email address. You've got email just everywhere. And, of course, you get a new gadget. What's the first thing you do? You put your email on there. and So it follows you around everywhere you go all the time. And you can try to turn off the notifications and you can try to limit, but it's just coming at you all the time. And one thing he recommends is clearing out your inbox and actually going through all of your emails and getting it down to where you have zero now, some people, that's like a dream, and they think, I could, ne- I could never get there. But, you know, if you actually go and do it, and I've done it, it is a great feeling. I am at zero. And usually minutes later, boom, I get flooded again. But it's a great feeling. You know, something that would really enhance your ability to be involved here at church, to be in your Bible, to be in prayer, to be effectively watching and praying as the Lord has commanded, is to kind of clean the inbox of your life out a little bit. What are the things that are distracting me, that are keeping me from, from watching and praying as the Lord would have me to? It may literally be your email. <laughs> it may literally be something in there that's waiting to be done. I'm thinking right now about something that someone asked me to write. I've got to get it done. Maybe it literally is something there. Maybe it's something in a pile. You've got some desk, some table somewhere in your apartment, you know where the things you don't want to have to think about, but you know have to be done, they get put there. <laughs> you need to, maybe you need to go deal with that. Am I saying productivity is a way to serve the Lord more? No. But decluttering, getting things out of your life, removing distractions out of the way, will help you to watch and to pray. And if we had hired a security guard, you can hire the NYPD when they're off duty, and it's like 60 bucks an hour, two-person minimum, four-hour four minimum. And uh, I looked into it one time, and... <laughs> and uh, Imagine those officers, and I, and I love the NYPD, and we pray for them regularly like you do, but imagine if we paid them out here to be watching the property, and we went out there, and they were staring at their phones. They were talking on the phone. They were checking. They were playing Fortnite on their cell phone or something like that. We would be, say, hey, you're on the clock. You're supposed to be watching. But I wonder how often when we're supposed to be serving the Lord, when we're supposed to be a witness, when we're supposed to be here, and we're off somewhere else. Not only physically, but mentally. We're just distracted. Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples for what's ahead. You might say, well, everything's good right now. It's okay, Pastor Mike. Don't make a big deal. Life changes fast. One day can change a lot. And hopefully, in some way, I've been able to help you as Jesus helped the disciples so that you'll be able to watch and pray. Let's bow for prayer. Someone asked a famous preacher...